Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cashback really adds up. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. I think the Chinese watch us uh, with fascination. In fact, their leadership knows a lot more about the U.S. and our history and our strengths and weaknesses than I'm afraid many of the people in our leadership know about China. I think they understand that we've been the greatest power that maybe the world has ever known, but certainly in anything like modern times, that we've created an international order in which they thrive. Nobody has actually benefited more from working within the American-led international order than the Chinese. But at the same time, they believe that their time has come, that this is going to be a Chinese century. So if we get this wrong, we could have the most catastrophic war history has ever seen. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Graham Allison is a professor of government at Harvard University, where he has taught for five decades. He is a leading analyst of national security with special interests in nuclear weapons, Russia, China, and decision-making. Graham was the founding dean of Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government, and until 2017 served as director of its Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, which is ranked the number one university-affiliated think tank in the world. Today, Graham joins us to talk about China, U.S. policy toward that country, and the future of the U.S.-China relationship. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. 
I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Graham, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It's great to have you on the show. It's actually an honor to have you on the show because you are, in my view, one of the great statesmen of national security scholarship in the United States. So uh, welcome to the program. It's an honor for me to be with you. Graham, this episode that we're doing is part of a series of episodes that we're doing between the election and the inauguration. We're going to cover all the key national security issues that are facing our nation. We actually started last week with H.R. McMaster, who gave us an overview of all the issues. And now we're going to start taking a deep dive on each of them. And as you know, we're going we're gonna to start today with China, an issue that I know you have been thinking a lot about and writing a lot about for some time now. Let me just let our listeners know, Graham, that even though we're taping this the Thursday after the election, we still don't know who won. And I actually think, Graham, that that's a good thing for our discussion because what I want to focus on with you is what should the United States do, not what will it do under a particular administration. So I think it's a good thing we don't know who won. Maybe the place to start, Graham, is to ask you, in putting together a China strategy, what's the issue we're trying to deal with? What's the problem that we're trying to solve? How do you think about that? So uh, great question. And I think the first place to start is to recognize that in the China challenge, we face a more uh, severe challenge and a more complex challenge than we've ever faced before. Indeed, much more complex than the Soviet Union and the Cold War, where you and I sort of earned our bones. So China is not just, as Washington now calls it, another great power competitor. China is a specific and acute form of great power competitor, namely a Thucydidean rival, a classic Thucydidean rival. And the defining characteristic of the Thucydidean rivalries is the rapid change in the tectonics of power in which one state, the rising power, is not just threatening to, but actually displacing the other competitor, the ruling power, from positions and prerogatives that it's become accustomed to over the period in which it's ruled, often a century, and upending the international order of which it's been the principal architect and guardian. So this is a challenge to the identity of the ruling power, who we are. Americans think and believe, and certainly I, that we are and deserve to be and need to be number one because we've been shaping an order quite successfully that's now given us seven decades without great power war, a great achievement historically. But the reality is, and who can deny that China is a meteoric rising power and that in many domains now it is overtaken and displace the U.S. from our position at the top of every pecking order, and that the implications of this for the international order and for establishing or basically upending what we've been accustomed to as the American-led international order 
is what's happening today. And this will be the defining feature of all the challenges, all the international challenges that the new administration will face for not just this administration, but as far as anybody can see. So Graham, kind of a related question. What are the objectives of our China strategy? What are we trying to achieve? What's the overarching goal that our China strategy is trying to get us to? How do you think about that? Well, I think the place to start is actually where you and I, uh, with our colleague Sandy Winnefeld, co-authored a piece recently, American National Interest. So the first question to ask about international challenges and our foreign policy is what matters more for us than other things that really matter? So the core of our national security interest is the survival of the U.S. as a free nation with our fundamental institutions and values intact. That's a sort of the mantra that became refined in the Cold War and that you and I uh, and many others cited over and over. So what's essential for the survival of the U.S. as a free nation with our fundamental institutions and values intact? Can we live in a world in which China has a bigger GDP than we do? I hope so. Can we live in a world in which China displaces us as the principal trading partner? I hope so. But will this be a different world and a more complicated world? The answer is absolutely right, and you bet. So what we care about first, in the first instance, are vital American national interests. We care about, uh, as we wrote in this foreign affairs piece, you and Sandy and I, the international operating system that the Americans have led in building that has allowed the U.S. and the globe and the world, everybody, to survive and thrive. And that's also challenged and being stressed by the emergence of another power that will be equal to and in some dimensions have advantages over the U.S. And then we have in our alliance system, which is a component of this, many of which will be overstressed by this because in the period in which the U.S. was the unipolar power, as we imagined or some imagined in the period right after the Cold War, or even in the earlier period, in 1950, U.S. had about half the world's GDP. So a strategy that we could manage and pay for when we had half the world's Mm -hmm. GDP is extremely different than the world, the policies we have to manage where we have one-seventh of the world's GDP. We're still a big, huge, powerful, I would say the most single powerful nation on earth. But we now have China, which is a serious Thucydide and rivalry. We have other great powers, Russia, which remains a nuclear superpower. And then we have the emergence of other powers who really matter, whether Japan or Turkey or Iran, or we can go on down the list. So Graham, would you then kind of boil down the fundamental objective as as we try to deal with China is how do we best maintain the international order that has served us all so well? Is that fair or would you go, would you go further than that as an objective? I think I would start with even a narrower objective, which is we want to guarantee the survival of the U.S., and our well-being. 
at the first, second, and third most important. Now, what's necessary for that? We've imagined, and I think it has been, the the American-led international order and the entire operating system. But I suspect we'll discover that we'll need to make some significant adjustments and adaptations. And let me just go back to the core strategy to help us remember. We as old Cold Warriors can remember when we finally got it into our head that we were, uh, even though we had a fierce rivalry with the evil empire, which I believe Ronald Reagan was right when he named it, at the same time, we lived in a, what was came to be known a mad world in which mad stu- stood for mutual assured destruction. And as Reagan would always remind people, a nuclear war cannot be won because it would actually erase us from the map. Right. So it can therefore not be fought. So we had to constrain our competition with and our rivalry with an evil empire to survive in the first instance in order to pursue whatever other objectives. If it turns out to be a Biden administration, I think a second MAD will become more visible and a more important part of American policy, which recognizes that in climate terms, if either the US or China, the two big greenhouse gas emitters, actually China emits almost twice as much greenhouse gas as we do right now, So unless either one of these two emitters can uh, so so disrupt the the enclosed uh, biosphere that neither of us can live in it. So again, that's another arena where at the same time that we're fierce rivals, we have to find a way to live together. Now then, what about the international order? Well, I think we're going to be all working. And I think that's where the challenges will occur as we think about what's the alignment and what are the alliances. Because in the in the book that I wrote on uh, Destined for War, I, produ- I reproduced this little seesaw in which you imagine the U.S. on one end of a seesaw on a kid's playground and China on the other, each represented by the size of its GDP. And what we discovered that is that actually just in in this 20, 21st century, China has gone from being about a quarter the size of our GDP to now larger than we are by the metric that CIA says is the best yardstick, namely purchasing power parity. So basically, it's lifted our feet off the ground on this seesaw. Right. So there's a necessity, therefore, for us to have allies and aligned with heft to sit on our side of the seesaw to rebalance things so that when dealing with China, we can deal from an advantageous correlation of forces rather than from a position of inferiority. So Graham, I want to dig down into the strategy a little bit more, but before we do that, let me ask you, how do you think the Chinese see us? How do you think they evaluate where we are and where we're going? Uh, so a good question. So uh, I think the Chinese watch us uh, with fascination. They study us. In fact, their leadership knows a lot more about the U.S. and our history and our strengths and weaknesses than I'm afraid many of the people in our leadership know about uh, about China. 
So I think they understand that we've been the greatest power that maybe the world has ever known, but certainly in anything like modern times, that we've created an international order in which they thrive. Right. Nobody has actually uh, benefited more from working within the American-led international order than the Chinese. But at the same time, they believe that their time has come, that this is going to be a Chinese century, and that uh, a culture and a civilization, as they think of it, which for, in their story, for 4,000 years was the leader and center of the universe and was displaced from that just a couple of hundred years ago by Westerners with technology who exploited and humiliated and imperialized China, that they think that period is over and that China is now returning to its natural place as the centerpiece of the order. So they believe that there's one sun, everybody else revolves around it. As they say, there's one tiger in the valley, not two. Mm. So their conception of us and their ideal, and actually I've talked to most of the people in their leadership who work directly for Xi Jinping about this, their picture is they like the Thucydides and rivalry story in the case of the U.S. and Great Britain. So I I focus usually on the rise of Germany at the beginning of the 20th century and its threat to displace Britain that was basically the primary cause of World War I. But at the same time, the Americans were rising. And actually, we rose meteorically after the Civil War. And in the, by 1900, we had a GDP bigger than Britain's. By 1914, probably 25 or 30% larger. So Britain, facing two rivals at the same time, found it necessary to accommodate to the U.S. reasserting our position as the dominant power, in, first in the Western Hemisphere, and then ultimately displacing uh Great Britain from its position as the leader of the international order. They did so in a way that was very graceful and and smart because they distinguished between what's called vital interest, as you and I wrote with Sandy, and things that are simply vested or that are or visible. So they thought what was vital for them was the survival of Britain and its empire that included Canada, to which we were a plausible threat, they thought they could accommodate us on who would be the dominant power in the Atlantic. And it turned out to be the U.S. Who would be the dominant power in the Western Hemisphere? It turned out to be the U.S. We we behaved actually, as I, I have a, a delicious chapter in my book uh, called What If She's China Were Just Like Us? Because Americans like to... Uh, preach to other people about why they should be just like us. But this just like us, when we were emerging under Teddy Roosevelt to what he was confident was going to be an American century and our behavior towards Great Britain, which they then had to accept and adapt to, was way more outrageous than anything Xi Jinping has done so far. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Graham Allison. 
<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Let me ask a two-part question, Graham, and the first part's hard, I think. The, the strategy that you think that we need to pursue vis-a-vis China to meet our objectives, to reach our goals, is there a name that you would give to that strategy? You, know, you talked about the British accommodating us. You know, we, we contain China. Is there a name that you would give to this strategy? That's the first part of the question. And then the second is, what do you think the key pieces are of that strategy? Okay, well, as you said, that's a hard question. So, but I will try my best. I've been obviously thinking about this since I sent this book to the publisher more than four years ago. So the the book Destined for War that was published just as Trump became president is essentially the diagnosis of the problem that we face, this Thucydidean rivalry that we talked about. The question is how to escape Thucydides' trap. How can we defend and advance our interests and values, but facing a world that's defined by this Thucydidean rivalry? And I think we have to find a way to hold, it's called, and I told my class, it's called passing the Scott Fitzgerald, the Gatsby guys, uh, test of a first-class mind. Yeah. He said the test of a first-class mind is the ability to hold two contradictory ideas in your head at the same time and still function. So I think our strategy have to hold in our head Mm. two contradictory ideas, one of which is the fiercest rivalry we ever saw. We really do want to compete and not just compete, but win in key arenas that are essential for our national interests. At the same time, we live in a world in which we both have superpower nuclear arsenals that could destroy each other. So if we have a nuclear war with China, you could actually imagine the outcome being both nations erased from the map. That's impossible to anybody to really Mm -hmm. envisage, but you and I thought about that a lot back in the Cold War. And secondly, again, hard for some people to imagine, but I think it's becoming more and more understood by thoughtful people that we really do live in a contained biosphere and that greenhouse gases anybody puts up goes into the same uh, biosphere and impacts the climate for everybody. So we're going to have to both be cooperating in areas where we face mutual existential threats that neither of us can deal with acting alone. So that's going to require a degree of coordination and cooperation on the one hand. At the same time, we're each fiercely attempting to uh, outdo the other as who's going to dominate AI, who's going to dominate quantum, who's going to have the superior military forces. If you look at a scenario like Taiwan, which you and your uh, colleague uh, 
uh, Winnefeld wrote so brilliantly about. Uh, now, can you both be a rival and a partner at the same time? And I say, I watch, I've been studying this uh, in the business world. They have something they call coopetition, mm. which they think is not that that unusual. So if you look at Apple and Samsung, they are two fierce competitors in selling smartphones. And actually, Samsung has a beat Apple in the in that market for the last four or five years. But at the same time, who is Apple's biggest supplier of components for smartphones? And it's Samsung. So actually, I asked Tim Cook this. I said, you know, what, what is going on here? How can your fiercest competitor be also your essential supplier? He said, life is complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so, Graham, finish a thought for me. If we get this right, what does it look like? Well, that's your the second part of the question about the key pieces. And if I were to list them, I think I... Unfortunately, it's probably a list of five or six or seven. Well, let me start down the list. Okay. I think unlike any period that you and I have ever seen before, this is going to be an instance in which the home front comes first. By this, I don't mean Trump's America first. I mean that we have to recognize, as we now see with the uncertainties about the outcome of the election, that our country is deeply divided. Lincoln, uh, who said many wise things, never said anything wiser than when he said, a house divided cannot stand. So as we saw is a consequence of a house divided in our civil war, that more Americans killed more Americans in our own civil war than have ever died in any other war. Yeah. So uh, this this is a fundamental problem we face at home. And in the same way that in the 1850s, or if you go back to Franklin Roosevelt when he came to office in 1993, so we have to get our own house in order. And there's a long list of things to do there. Uh, they're all easy to say and extremely hard to do. But the bottom line of this first point is that if we fail to deal with our problems at home, we won't have to worry about our problems abroad because we can never be stronger abroad than we are at home. So I'd say that's the, that the first and, and almost overwhelming one. Secondly, I think in rec- you have to recognize that China is this simultaneous fierce rival on the one hand, but that we live in a world in which we have to survive with them because the only alternative is to co-destruct. So that's a big item. So third, if you go back to this seesaw analogy, it's just, again, simplistic, but still it reminds us that if the guy on the other side of the seesaw has four times as many people as we do, then there's no reason why, I mean, currently they're about a quarter as productive as Americans. So why couldn't they be half as productive? Right. They're smart, they're hardworking, so they'll have a GDP twice ours. Right. And they can have a defense budget or intelligence budget twice ours. I mean, they will not be constrained by money. So we need other folks of weight to be on our side of the seesaw. So a necessity for allies. 
So absolutely the contrary of withdrawing from uh, our alliance uh, structure, I think we need to re review and re-examine. I would even say maybe zero base the alliance system because a lot of it is mm -hmm. just over, you know, just inherited from the Cold War or from before. But it will be essential to have other nations allied and aligned if we're to have a favorable correlation of forces. Now that's the third. The fourth thing going on at the same time is this notion of relentless globalization in which the combination of technology and consciousness is shrinking the globe so that now virtually everybody of the seven and whatever, 7.7 billion people, I think there's 6 billion smartphones or something. So yeah. virtually everybody can connect to everybody. Everybody can see something that's happening almost everywhere. And that technological process can't be, uh, can be, you know, can be slowed. It can be diverted for a bit, but it's happening. So the, What's, what's actually happened simultaneously with this is that by, uh, by, by, uh, by engaging the whole globe, one sees this has seen these huge increases in well-being for everybody. So Adam Smith taught us about trade, whereas if you and I trade, as opposed to each of us trying to produce bananas and computers for ourselves, we can each have twice as much as if... You know, this if we tried to do it alone. Well, this has happened in almost every arena. So if you look at the advancement of knowledge or the advancement of technology or actually the advancement of cuisine, I mean, what would life be like if we had only to eat, you know, food from North Carolina where I come from or Ohio where you came from? So right. everybody's lives have been enriched by a process of globalization, but we're also becoming more conscious of the ways that it has downsides. And we see this in the pandemic, but we also see this in it asymmetrically advantaging China in some spaces. So that's another complexity. So I think that the agenda for whoever is trying to manage something that could be called, maybe if I were labeling, I'd call it something like global competitive coexistence. And I know that's, as a, we would have to have something more elegant than that if we're trying to have a, but it, but it would involve recognizing it's global. So China is going to be rivaling us in every dimension and it's the rivalry is going to impact everybody everywhere. It's competitive because it really does matter uh, who's uh, number one in AI, given its applications for intelligence and the military and many other arenas. And it's got to be uh, coexisting, namely we have to be sure we manage it sufficiently that we don't end up making a climate we can't live in or having a nuclear war that you know destroys us all. This is great discussion. So what does the world look like? So I'm another going to ask you another hard question. What does the world look like if we in China get this right? And what does the world look like if we don't? Oh, Michael, hey, there's a reason why you were a brilliant intelligence analyst. <laughs> and I would rather be asking the questions than getting in. <laughs> so if we get this wrong, we could have the most catastrophic war 
history has ever seen. So this seems incredible to most of your listeners, I'm sure. But what I try to do in the book, Destined for War, is put the U.S. China, locate the U.S.-China rivalry on the map of history. I look at the last 500 years, we find 16 cases, one six, in which a rising power threatened to displace a major ruling power. 12 of those cases end in war, devastating war. And a great example is World War I. How in the world could the assassination of an archduke, who was a second level official in Sarajevo in June of 1914, have created a conflagration that was so devastating that historians had to create a whole new category to describe it. That's why it's called World War I. So in a Thucydidean rivalry where Germany really was rising to threaten Great Britain's position as it had been the ruler of the world for a hundred years. The sun never set on its empire. It was the ruler of the waves. So as this occurred, this magnifies misperceptions. It multiplies miscalculations, and it leaves both parties vulnerable to some incident or accident, like the assassination of an archduke that triggers a cycle of reactions that in five weeks allowed an event that hardly mattered to most people to have dragged everybody into a war. So the the bad news side of this would be a devastating war. And unfortunately, I think if Thucydides were watching this drama today, he would say both the rising power and the ruling power look like they're right on script. Uh, And they seem to be accelerating towards what could be the grandest collision of all times. And a good pathway to that is described in that piece, the two pieces that you and your co-author Winifel wrote about Taiwan. I can easily imagine Xi Jinping uh, deciding, especially if we go into an extended period of confusion and distraction here with our own domestic politics, deciding that he can do for Taiwan and his Taiwan problem what he's done with the Hong Kong problem. They use force and solve it, which they're doing quite successfully in Hong Kong. And if they were to do that and we were to come to the military support of Taiwan, I think we could find ourselves, God help us, in a catastrophic war. So that's the bad news. On the good news side, if we if we take that case uh, cases from history, so four of the 16 cases, there was no war. And one of those was the war that you and I were part of in the Cold War, uh, where ultimately the contradictions in the crazy Marxist-Leninist Soviet command and control system hollowed the place out to the point that it collapsed. So China is trying with its party-led authoritarian government to make something work that certainly has never worked historically. And actually, and that, I take my clues from Lee Kuan Yew, who ran in, who managed a non-democratic Singapore. And Lee Kuan Yew said, 
China cannot be a democracy because if it were to, its governance would collapse. But at the same time, he told Xi Jinping repeatedly, and I talked to Li Kuan Yu about this at some length, he told him, look, what you're currently doing is not going to work. You're trying to take a 20th century operating system, this party-led authoritarianism, and paste onto it 21st century apps where everybody has a smartphone. Everybody can see everything. Everybody can know everything. You can put up your firewalls. Everybody intelligent can get a VPN and get around them. So this is simply not going to work. So one possibility is the rivalry goes on for some period of time. We get our act together, a dysfunctional democracy today, but one that I'm hopeful, indeed confident, will get its act back together as we've done several times before when we almost (laughs) went over the cliff. So that's one story. An alternative story that the Chinese like better is, as I mentioned before, the accommodation that Britain made to the U.S. as we emerged to be first a rival and then to overtake the uh, Great Britain and then ultimately to displace it. So, again, it's hard for people like me, who's a very red-blooded American, to imagine. But I think history reminds us that, you know, that doesn't end. So there's no final point in history. It evolves. And in the evolution, people's minds and views change. So could we imagine a world in which uh, 50 years from now, China is several times larger than we are, but we and uh, an alliance system and China remain in some combination of rivalry and some degree of cooperation. And their system has evolved uh, to allow more uh, freedom for their, uh, more political freedom for their citizens. Well, sounds a little bit romantic, but I can, I can almost imagine that. So I, I think that what we're in for is, uh, again, since history doesn't end, a rivalry and a degree of co- and a necessity to coexist and therefore cooperate to some extent and where it's essential for our survival in a long-term competition in which we'll see whether we can make our democracy work successfully to deliver more of what people want than any other system of government. And that's what we believe. And they'll try to see, or at least their party leadership will try to see if they can make a party-led autocracy deliver more of what people want than uh, than any alternative system. And if if that if if that were a fair competition, that's another subject how you get a level playing field. But if that was a fair competition, it's I think one that uh, certainly Americans who I mean, there's some defeatist Americans who wouldn't embrace that, but I would with confidence that uh, our core beliefs in individuals' uh, liberty and their demand for realizing what we say are their endowed rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness applies to all people, Chinese and uh, Americans and 
everybody else. Graham, you have been fantastic with your time. Let me thank you. Throughout the conversation, you mentioned a number of publications. Let me just quickly go through them for my listeners. The first is your terrific book, Destined for War, which people can find on Amazon. I'm sure they can find it in a bookstore. You mentioned an article that you and I and the former vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Sandy Winnefeld, recently wrote in Foreign Affairs. That title is Why American Strategy Fails, Ending the Chronic Imbalance Between Ends and Means. And then you mentioned um, two articles that Sandy Winnefeld and I wrote on China and Taiwan, and folks can find those um, at Naval Proceedings. And the title of that of those are The War That Never Was and The War That Never Was Part Two. So, Graham, thank you so much for joining us. This is an incredibly complicated issue, and uh, it's going to be something that people are talking about for a very, very long time. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Graham Allison. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ariana Freeman. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.